0: So recently, my wife and I had a battle of wills. And it involved these two items. So the the first is this is a a photo, a picture I took of my wife with her two best friends, took this in Olympia, Washington. It's a great picture. And the other is uh, this. Now, this is a very useful device, this is an atomic clock and uh, it is very helpful. It shows the exact time. It also shows the outside and the inside temperature. Now, one of my many quirks is that when I'm at home at any moment, I desire the ability to look very easily and see what time it is, and hopefully to also see the temperature outside, because looking at my phone or asking Alexa would be way too hard, right? So don't judge me. Um, Four months ago, we moved into our current home, and already I have my spot. Uh, at any moment uh, from this, it's just, it's just a great uh, spot, for, uh, and it's in the living room. And for those, all of you heathens who are familiar with the Big Bang Theory, I am Sheldon. Okay, I, I have my spot, uh, because from that spot, I have a comfortable angle in which I can see directly out in the trees, the TV in the corner, and the fireplace to my right. It's the perfect spot. And uh, except from that spot, there is no clear view of a clock in the living area. So I ordered this clock off of Amazon, and naturally I placed the clock on the fireplace hearth because that is conveniently in my line, the, the window, the TV, the clock, and the fireplace. It's the perfect spot. I understand. I have issues. So uh, the, here's the two-fold problem. One is that my wife is not a fan of the clock in the living room because apparently it doesn't fit with the aesthetics, whatever that means. And secondly, secondly, the picture of Shauna and her friends were in the optimal spot for the clock. So sorry, Angie, I had to move it. Uh, (laughs) I had to move the picture because that's where the clock should obviously go based on my spot. So for a couple of weeks, here's what would happen. I would walk into the room and find the picture was where Shauna desired it to be, and my clock would be off somewhere to the side on the floor against the wall somewhere. And so being the mature, mature, grown man that I am... Uh, when Shauna was out of the room, I just simply switched them. Uh, but imagine my surprise when later that day or the next day I would come in and her picture was magically back up on the hearth and my clock would be off to the side somewhere on the floor somewhere. So this went on for about two weeks until finally I decided to take it up a notch. And I kind of placed the picture back behind the edge of the couch, uh, but she found them, found it. And again, being the mature man that I am, I thought, who does she think she is? And I swapped them back until the next day, my clock was missing entirely. (laughs) And there was her picture in the spot where my clock should be. So thoughtfully, I glanced down at my forearm and was reminded of the foundational question that I worked to try and live my life by. What does love require of me? So the question is, did I do what love requires of me? And the answer is yes, because I love that clock, and I love my spot. And so what love required of me was if she's going to hide my clock, then it is on like Donkey Kong. You want to go? Let's go. So I hid her picture in the oven. Don't tell her. Now, as I say this out loud, like clearly on the inside, I'm thinking, I am a 55-year-old man, okay? She is a 57-year-old woman. We are grown adults. We've been married for 34 years. She is my person. She is the love of my life. None of that mattered. I wanted my clock where I wanted it. She wanted her picture where she wanted it in the same spot. So here we are, grown adults reduced to three-year-olds having a passive-aggressive tantrum of our toys. What is wrong with us? So this silent stalemate went on for a few days. No clock, no picture. I never said a word about it, neither did she. It was just a silent battle of wills and I was going to win until about two weeks ago. (laughs) And Shauna was having a really rough day and I felt horrible for, for her so without saying a word, I got her cherished picture from its hiding spot and without saying a word, I just set it on the kitchen counter and then I went to my office to go work on something. I came out about a couple hours later and I walked into the living room and I saw the picture back in its spot and I saw my clock against the wall but where I could see it from my spot. (laughs) And this is a glimpse into the 34-year marriage. of the guy they let be pastor of New Life, Wichita, and his very strong-willed wife. (laughs) Now, I share that silly story because the simple fact is marriage is complicated. And for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about it. It's one of my favorite subjects to talk about, but obviously we aren't going to be able to talk about everything involved in marriage, uh, but what we're going to do is we're actually going to revisit a foundational uh, universal, universal principle that applies to every marriage. It's something introduced, we introduced at New Life four years ago, but we've got a lot of new faces. Some of you, your lives are just not the same. Some of you have been married since then. Some of you have uh, created small humans. That changes everything. Uh, but this foundational principle, it impacts every area of marriage, and hopefully, having this come from nearly 35 years of personal marriage experience, having raised four children into adulthood, after nearly 35 years of personal marriage, most of them happy, by the way, and having together raised these four children, and being empty nesters going on nine glorious years, uh, we will, hopefully, that offer some level of of credibility. But the first thing I want to do is say is, if you're not married, or if you doubt you'll ever marry, I want you to hear me say this congratulations. Like, I want to affirm you, okay? Uh, See, if you're an unmarried person, you have been empowered with a huge amount of freedom and advantages that we married people simply don't have. In fact, for those of us that identify as followers of Jesus, we follow a man, follow a Savior who lived and died single, and a virgin, by the way, and a person who arguably made the greatest impact on the world, on human history other than Jesus, was a Jesus follower named Paul. And what positioned for him to do all that he accomplished was the fact that he chose not to marry. Not only that, but Paul actually strongly encouraged men and women to not marry. Because as an unmarried person, you possess this freedom to quickly mobilize and pivot and take action and just react with your time. It's a freedom that married people surrender once we are married. But should the unexpected happen, and you find yourself in this unforeseen situation of falling in love and getting married, you have the chance to be prepared uh, just in case. And for those of you who you feel or hope that marriage is still a possibility for you in the future, this is great timing because it's an opportunity to shape or reshape your view of marriage so that if in the future you should marry or marry again, you will be ready for something even better. Now to get started, as I said, we talked about marriage at New Life before, Again, some of this will sound a little familiar to you, but one of the things that complicates marriage is that we, when we imagine marriage or we get into marriage, no matter what you believe religiously, you know, we may walk up the aisle with bouquets of flowers and carrying a box with rings on it, but we also carry an unseen box. We carry this unseen box of hopes, dreams, and desires and we begin to imagine what our life would look like. So uh, we imagine and we dream like what what our house is going to be like. You know, maybe we're going to start off in an apartment or a rental, but someday we're going to own a home and it'll either be in the subdivision or it'll be out in the country. And I have a vision or I imagine what uh, how tidy the house is going to be clean, you know, kept. It's going to be clean. It's going to be like completely dust lint free, whatever it is. Or like I don't care if there's clutter, there's dirt, you know. Just want there, everybody to be happy. Uh, you imagine what your career path is going to look like, and either I or my spouse, you know, we may start out at the bottom, but we're going to work our way up to the top, or maybe we're going to start uh, a business together. And then you know we think about uh, having a family and think like, oh, you know, we'll want to have a child like in the, in the first year or maybe within the first five years or maybe aren't there already enough children in the world, you know, or like why would I want to ruin my body or ruin my freedom with these little bacteria factories that demand so much of me and, and all this. And then we imagine there'll be certain roles, you know, like my mom, like she was such a good cook and so my wife will cook for me or it was my dad, whatever it is, but some, you know, we imagine different duties and who's going to do what and do what chores uh, around the house. And then, men, we imagine something that our wife will never wear to bed. And just like, but then the woman's thinking, he'll just want me to be comfortable. He won't care what I'm wearing to bed, so I'll just wear whatever. And, you know, we kind of imagine what our sexual intimacy, got the kissy emoji, uh, the intimacy, physical intimacy is going to look like. And, you know, we'll be together physically like once a week, once a month, once a day, once a year, whatever the frequency is. And we just have different visions of what that's going to look like. And then uh, we imagine our our money, like how we're going to handle it. Like, oh, we'll have, like, one pool. We'll just pool all of our money and resources. Or we're going to have two separate accounts. And we're going to have a budget. Or, like, no, we don't really need a budget as long as we stay in the black. And, and that you know, that's all we care about. And then we imagine time and how, you know, our marriage is going to be scheduled. And, like, we're going to do all these activities during the week. And it's like, no, going to come home, just unplug and be settled. Or we're going to hang out with friends. Or I'll have my friends. You have your friends. We'll never let our friends meet, whatever it is. And then you imagine, uh, you know, vacations, you know, together. Maybe it'll be hiking and mountains and the outdoors and and camping. And it's like, no, camping is a Hampton Inn. You know, it'll be Disney World. It'll be something like that. Something with air uh, air conditioning. And we think about how we're going to split the holidays. And so there's all these things that we come into marriage. And here's how I envision it. But what do all of those things have in common? I. This is how I envision, how I think things will things that we just assume and things we don't even talk about. You have a certain dream, you have a dream in your mind, you have an image in your mind, you have a desire, and on and on it goes. And we come into marriage with all of these things. And the thing it has in common is I. This is what I envision and imagine, desire, what I wish for, how I picture it, what I expect. And it makes all the sense in the world, but, but at the altar, or on the honeymoon, or a month later, or after that first year of marriage, we begin to do something subconsciously. We don't necessarily do it on purpose, but it impacts the the entire dynamic of the relationship. And here's what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. That without really being aware of it, that all of these desires, which are not necessarily bad desires, they're good desires, they're often legitimate, they begin to transform into something else. And they end up moving into a different category, desires, Good desires ultimately become expectations in the relationship. There's a shit that happens. Well, you were my fiance, but now, you know, and back then we, we could dream, but now you're my wife, you know, and now I expect, or you were my fiance, we just dreamed together about the future, but now, now you're my husband. I mean, after all, that's what husbands do. I mean, that's what my dad did. That's what husbands Do. And somewhere along the way, just wonderful, hopeful, blissful hopes, dreams, and desires, they change. And this, when this transfer happens, the dynamic of the marriage instantly changes. Because now it's not just one big eye in the marriage, it's two big eyes in the marriage. And eventually, the big eyes collide. And when that happens, you just have a few options. One is that you cut and run. And you just distance yourself from your spouse. You know, emotionally or physically, one or both go like, I give up. I'm out of here. You just, you just decide, you know, he wasn't a good hub- husband, she wasn't a good wife, she did or he did or didn't. In other words, I had expectations about what a good husband or a good wife was supposed to be, and they weren't one. Or his or her expectations, they, they were just so insane, I was never going to meet their expectations. So I'm just done. And unfortunately, you know what most people do? They end up just saying, I'm just going to take my box of desires, and I'm going to go find someone else to put them on. And the problem is, after a little while, they begin to realize my second marriage feels a lot like my first marriage. The, the other thing we sometimes do is conquer. You try to change your spouse. What that means is that the stronger partner wins. It's like, listen, this is what I expect you to do, and, and, and if you don't, there's some sort of punishment in some sort of relational or psychological or verbal. Maybe it's by withdrawing or, in extreme cases, physical aggression or, in the reverse, just the withholding of intimacy, of affection, of care, and generally, there's a dominant partner in the relationship in a marriage. And the weaker one ultimately backs down or cowers after this individual explains and explains and explains to where your partner can finally understand what it means to be a good husband or finally understand what it means to be a good wife. And he or she begins to try and live up to your expectations. Every day, working to reach that bar and jump higher, suddenly you, the dominant one, begin to think like, hey, this is working. Like, but what you don't understand is it's very easy for you to be you. It's very easy for me to be me. I mean, never once have you had to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and go, now remember, be me. You know, like, you just don't have to do that. But it's very difficult for me to be Shauna, and it's very difficult and stressful for Shauna to try and be me. So you explain over and over and over again. This is how a good husband is supposed to be. This is how a good wife is supposed to be. This is how things are supposed to be kept around the house. This is how things are supposed to be scheduled. This is how we handle money. This is the way we handle conflict. This is the quantity and quality of sex and what it's supposed to be like. This is what a wife does. This is what a husband does. Do you understand? Do I need to make a PowerPoint? Finally, someone waves the white flag and says, "Okay, okay, I'll do it your way." But when your spouse decides that they're going to try and be you, it is extraordinarily stressful. But you don't know that because you understand you. It comes natural for you to be you, and you think things are great. The flip side of this is you respond to being the conquered and just decide, "I give up. I'm just going to conform." And you conform to try and be like your spouse. It's like, all right, all right, I give up. If that's what it takes to make you happy, if that's the way your mom did it, that's the way your dad always did it, I I give up. Maybe out of love, maybe out of duty, or just to stop the nagging or the threatening. But conforming to become what someone else expects you to be is extraordinarily stressful because you weren't made them. And typically what happens is this, and it's an observation, is that the dominant partner is the one who sets the bar in the marriage. The person that they're married to never quite measures up in their eyes. So the more dominant partner lives in this perpetual state of dissatisfaction with the person that they're married to. And here's what typically happens, late 30s, sometimes in their 40s, that begins to break down emotionally, physically, People who've been in a marriage where they've just tried and tried and tried to pull up and pull up and reach that bar and measure up and measure up and measure up emotionally, physically, it begins to unravel. And I've seen this so many times couples after 20, 30, even 40 years of marriage, often when the last child leaves home, they just go, That's it, I'm done. I'm done trying to measure up to your standards and they either give up and just simply stay married or they walk. And people are so shocked to see people that have been together that many years leave a spouse or have an affair or get a divorce. But it makes total sense if you understand this dynamic. Sometimes it's the dominant partner who has spent the entire relationship in just sort of this low-grade sense of frustration and disappointment and dis- dissatisfaction, they finally decide this person is never going to measure up. I can do better. And they walk. I've seen this so many times. The, the other option is, and this may be the one that most couples opt for, and that is compromise. You try, you try to work it out so that both win compromise says, okay, we, we, we made these vows. Let's carry it out for the sake of the marriage. Or let's carry it out for the sake of the kids. I mean, you want it that way. I want it this way. We're just going to compromise. We're just going to compromise with money, with friends. You know, you have yours. I'll have mine. You have your space. I'll have mine. And everything goes good for a while. But the problem with the compromised marriage is it's still just a big I marriage. Because I, I, I will do my part if you, you, you do your part. Two big capital I's. Basically, they draw a line down the middle of the marriage, and then it's a tug of war to try and keep things right in the middle so that everything is fair. But in the end, it's still a big I marriage, and the focus of your attention, your passion, your concern, your prayer request is not a person, it's the marriage. And in a compromised marriage, you're very committed to the marriage. But for those of us who look to the New Testament for marriage guidance, the great news is we're never commanded to be committed to a marriage. We're commanded to be committed to a person. See, I never want Shauna committed to our marriage. I want to feel like she can be committed to me, like big I, like be committed to me. And there's no way Shauna would be content if I was just committed to the institution of our marriage. In fact, from the beginning of our marriage, we made a very important decision that with God's help, we would never settle for just staying married. We said that we were determined to do whatever it took to have the kind of marriage that should our children... Someday marry, and their marriage and relationship and intimacy would be a reflection of ours that we would be happy for them. In fact, honestly, that's a great question if you're married. If the current or future marriage of your children were to be a direct reflection of yours, would you be happy about that? Would you be thrilled about that? I mean, that's a great, terrifying question. And that's why we're talking about this. And I'm telling you, you don't want to settle for a marriage that says, I will if you will, and you will if I will. That's not a covenant. That's a contract. And in a contract marriage, guess what's the first thing to go? Romance and intimacy. I mean, think back to when you're dating. It's not about a contract, right? Like you just can't get enough of each other and just want to be together. And, you know, and how many stories I talk to be like, oh, we closed down the bar, we stayed on the phone until three in the morning or whatever it was. We, it just, we just can't get enough of each other. Now, listen, sometimes compromise or even commitment to the marriage is a first step to get to where things need to be granted. But when you settle for a contract or commitment marriage or a, a contract compromise marriage, it's still just a big I marriage and there's this dynamic that is so insidious and subtle and it just creates this tension and stress in the marriage that oftentimes people can't quite put their fingers on. It's just all they know is I just, I just don't like him and I want to blame him and he wants to blame me and no matter what we do, we just can't seem to get things resolved. Well, here's why. Because you have a marriage centered around expectations And at that point, the stuff that makes marriage great evaporates. It's just gone. Because when desires become expectations, you you end up in a debt-debtor relationship. It's like, I expect them to or I expect them not to. And another way of expressing this is, you owe me. You owe me. I mean, you're my wife. You owe me. You're my husband. You owe me. I mean, remember we stood at an altar and you promised to love me for better, for worse. And we made vows and I'm just holding you to them. To which you could go, well, you owe me too. I mean, you were there, your mama was there, your daddy was there. You said in front of everybody and God (laughs) that I promise forever and ever, I'm just holding you to the promise that you made. Now stop moving my clock. And all of us, all of us could build a strong, convincing case for what our spouse owes us. But you need to know, as justified as you may feel, as justified as you may actually be, if you do that, you opt for a debt-debtor relationship with your spouse. And the moment that happens, the relationship, the trust, the intimacy, the friendship, the romance, all the things that make marriage great are gone. And listen, if, if you're ex- here's the other thing. If your expectation is this and you get this, how much credit does your spouse get? None. Why? Be- because that's just what husbands are supposed to do. That's just what a wife is supposed to do. It's like, congratulations, you're up to zero now. You're break even. You're on par. So why would I say thank you and celebrate something that you should just already do anyways as my husband or as my wife? See, this is why you never receive a personal, intimate, perfume-laced letter with a gift card from your mortgage company. Dear Chad, once again, we just want to write and thank you for sending in your mortgage payment enclosed as a $100 gift card to Firebirds. We didn't know what your kids would like, but if you let us know, we'll send them something next month too. We're just so appreciative. I don't get a thank you note from my mortgage company or a Kansas gas or Evergy when I pay on time, and neither do you. Why? Because that's just the expectation. The only time you get a personalized letter and special attention is if what? You miss a payment. In fact, if you miss enough payments, they will make a personal phone call to you. You will get individualized attention if you don't meet their expectations. I wonder how many of you sometimes feel that way in your marriage? That as long as you do everything right in the eyes of your spouse, everything's peaceful, but there's not a lot of love. It's, but if you fail to meet an expectation, leave something undone, fall short, not put something away, drop the ball on something, what happens? You get personalized attention and it's negative, right? Maybe you're someone who likes to come home to a nice, neat, orderly world like me. I have two options. I can desire it. I can desire a nice, neat, orderly home, and I come into it, or I can expect it. If it's a desire and I come home to it, I'm just so grateful. It's like, oh my gosh, babe, the house looks so great. Thank you so much. Why? Because that's what I desire. But if it's an expectation, I don't even notice. Unless what? It's like, okay, honey, could you come over here? Like, I know the house is 99% good, but like, like, why is this out? Like, kids, come over here. Can you see this? Get really close. Can you see this? And see, when that happens, nobody gets credit. Nobody feels loved. Everybody's just trying to get to the bar. Because what was a desire, which isn't necessarily a bad desire, it just became an expectation. And so if that's the situation, everybody just lives under this pressure. And if they meet the bar, they get nothing because that was zero. Now, let me tell you where we're not going to go with all this. The conclusion isn't, well, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't just have any expectations. Just let go of everything. Everything and don't have any dreams, any desires, just have nothing. Like, just give it all up. Like, we're not going there. Because many of our dreams, many of our desires are God-given desires. To ignore them and pretend that they aren't there, it's like, to somehow decide that they're not bad, like, that's not helpful. That's not even healthy. Respect, admiration, men especially, God designed you to want to feel admired and respected. And for ladies, for most of you, God Designed you to be long to be cherished and valued, to be shown affection for men and women. It's a God given desire for companionship, to feel accepted. It's a, it's a God thing, it's a good thing. To desire intimacy, to desire sexual, non sexual intimacy and fulfillment, the desire to be heard, the desire for honesty and openness and financial stability. Those are good things, and those are good, legitimate desires. The challenge we're going to wrestle with is that the minute that I take a God-given desire and then I place it as an expectation on my spouse or the shoulders of my wife, a God-given desire begins to feel like an expectation, and I begin to relate to my wife as if she owes me. And you begin to relate to your husband if if they owe you. And here's how to know if you have moved from desires to expectations. And this may be the whole reason that you're here or listening today, so please don't miss this. It's simple. Your expressions of gratitude and your acts of service. That's it. Expression of gratitude. Because we don't express gratitude for things that we've come to expect, do we? Like, that's just her job, or that's just what he does. Like, why would I say thank you for that? The frequency or the infrequency of your expressions of gratitude for this, the menial, daily, normal, weekly routine kind of things tells you in a moment whether or not you've transitioned from a desire relationship to an expectation relationship. If you're married and you can't remember the last time you looked at your husband in the eye and said, I just just want to thank you again. I just want to thank you again for how hard you've worked to provide opportunities for me, for us, for our family. Just thank you. I mean, even if you're a dual income family, even if you make more than your husband, it's just like, part of that income has helped make some dreams come true, right? Even if it's been true for 25, 35 years, like just because, you know, it's become commonplace, does that mean that somehow gratitude should just go away? Or your wife, your wife is, she's just one of those doers. I mean, your wife, she gets stuff done. Like you need something to be done. She says she's going to, you know, she's going to do it. She's on it and uh, you know, maybe she's a stay-at-home mom, maybe she works outside the home, either way. It's like you walk into the kitchen, and there are clean dishes in the cabinets that you didn't put there. Or you walk out, for those of you men, you, some of you get this, there's been some videos, I have a magic closet, like I walk in, and there are clean clothes there that I didn't hang there. And fun one, I thought about sharing a picture, but it feels like it might cross the line. But I've got a drawer that's mainly underwear and socks. If I just put them all in there like this (laughs) by the next morning, magic. They're all folded up and the socks are tucked together and compartmentalized and divided. It's it's magic. How often do you say thank you? How often do you say thank you? Say it in a text or leave her a note. Babe. Wow, thank you. Thank you for doing this. I just so appreciate you. Or if she's a source of your family income, again, maybe the lion's share. Maybe you got a sugar mama. When was the last time you said, thank you? Ladies, within the past month, how often have you thanked your husband and expressed gratitude? I'm just telling you that my wife has become so good at this. Literally yesterday, I fulfilled a desire of hers. I moved about a 12-foot tree, a tree, okay? Okay. I did not want to do it, but she didn't pressure me to do it. But I knew she desired it. So I got to working on it. She went and got one of our lawn tears. She went out there and she sat and she's watching there and she's just like, oh baby, you're so strong. And I was like, how did you think to do it like that with, that, with the leverage and all that, and it looks so much better. And like to her, I was like, yeah, whatever, but, in, you know, thanks, babe. But inside I'm like, oh, Chad, big, strong, smart, you know. <laughs> And what makes it even more special is because she's not naturally a words of encouragement person, but in our marriage, she's become so good at this. And how do you think that affects me as a man? Like, just I want to do more for her. I want to see me the way she sees me. Amen. I'm telling you, we live in a world and a culture that relentlessly attacks women from an extremely young age. Like, I don't even know like what your wife as a young girl or as a teenager or as a young woman experienced being treated less than because she was a girl or being sexualized by boys and men. Maybe she was violated verbally or even physically by being touched in ways she never wanted to be touched and she carries that with her. But either way, we live in a culture that relentlessly amplifies and fuels and adds to some of a woman's deepest insecurities about her mind, her body, and her value. So when we as a husband decide to make it a daily, consistent posture to be her defender and her biggest cheerleader, expressing praise and appreciation through words and notes and texts and flowers and gifts, whatever speaks love and value to your wife for their mind, for their intelligence, for their character, for their beauty and strength. We become their primary cheerleader and the guardian of their heart and spirit. And I'm telling you, that is the man you want to be. Husbands and wives, if you can't remember really the last time you expressed gratitude and appreciation you know what that means it means at some point you came to believe that he or she owes you you didn't do it on purpose the other gauge is acts of service in an expectation marriage you see something needs to be done and you go oh he'll do that she'll do that i'll just set my dirty dishes on the sink i have helped she'll get that that's what she does She'd like the carpet vacuum. She'll get to that. And again, you can stay in an expectation marriage if you want. I mean, that's your choice. You can maintain a relationship built on you you owe me. That's fine. All I'm saying is there's a better way. Like one of the joys I get to experience in my life is watching the way my wife lights up when I do something unexpected for her. And I'm so grateful to her every single day for the seemingly mundane things that she does for me. In fact, you can fact check me. Just ask her, is there a day that goes by that Chad doesn't express appreciation and praise you verbally or in a note or a text or all three? Now, I want to make something really clear. This is not because I'm that awesome, because I'm not. I'm one of the most selfish people I know, and it's not because I'm smart. It's because from the time I was young, I paid attention to certain people in my life, like my grandparents, and I watched how they showed love to one another fiercely, And I learned from other men and women older than me who I admired. I identified couples in my life that were further down the road. And I look at them, I think, I like a marriage like that when I'm their age, or I've been married that long. And I would invite them to coffee. I would ask questions. I read books. I sought to keep growing in in the unconditional, sacrificial love that Jesus introduced to the world. And at times, Sean and I got professional counseling so that we didn't light each other on fire. And over time, she got better, I got better, we got better at this. And all I want for you is to imagine that kind of a marriage. Imagine a marriage where all the dreams and desires stay in that category. Of hopes, dreams, and desires. Because if you do, it means anytime you're able to find a dream or desire of the person that you're married to, you get to make it fun, make it like a game. Like, how can I fulfill that for him, for her? And it will feel like love to them because they kept it in the hopes, dreams, and desires box. Imagine a marriage that was built around two people doing this Joyfully seeking to fulfill the desires and dreams of the person that you're married to rather than trying to make them live up to your expectations. This fuels intimacy and romance. This erodes it. This is a covenant. I will even if you don't. This is a contract. I will if you will so here's what we're going to talk about the next two weeks how do you keep all of this from transitioning to here and if you identify things that are here how do you get them back into hopes and dreams and desires and not how do you get rid of this totally or ignore it that's not realistic it's not healthy But it's possible. It begins with the answer to this one question. And especially if you're married, I'd love for you to pull your phone out. Some of you have been shopping on Amazon anyways. Uh, Go ahead and take your phone out uh, and open up your camera app. I'd like you to take a picture of the screen. I want to challenge you this week to think about this question over and over. What does my spouse owe me? And then I want you to oh Are they not up there? Boom. Okay, so to just take a picture of those passages. I want you to answer that question, what does my spouse owe me? And then I want you to look up and read these passages in the New Testament. Maybe screenshot, open them in a Bible app and you can screenshot them. Ladies, what does your husband owe you? Men, what does your wife owe you? And as you go through this next week, pay attention and identify all the little things that honestly you hadn't thought about before, but you realize, you know, I just simply kind of expect that they'll do this. These are some things that I didn't realize, but I kind of take it for granted. I didn't do it on purpose. You just naturally assume or expect your spouse will do it because until you know what's in here, you won't be able to do the next step to be able to get them back into where they belong. So this week, what does your spouse owe me? And then read verses in light of that to answer the question. Let's pray. God, I just, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful that you provide somebody that could tolerate me this long. I'm so grateful for marriage and what I feel like I've learned about you in the relationship of marriage. And Father, for those that are, that are single and are going to stay unmarried father i pray god that you give them clarity on the great calling that you have for their life and the freedom that you've given them that that we sacrifice and that you through them would do great things and for those of us that are married we will be married father um, a quick glance at genesis 2 guarantees there's going to be struggles there's going to be challenges But, Father, it gives us also this amazing opportunity to learn how to love as you have loved us unconditionally and sacrificially. I pray for every marriage represented in this room, those listening online, Father, and whatever it is, whatever the challenge spots are, Father, I pray that even if there hasn't been hope for a long time, that you would give renewed hope, a renewed sense of direction, and a sense that you care. And that, Father, you can do far more than we could ask or imagine. And, Father, that you would create, even within this group, a set of marriages that would cause other couples from the outside to look in and go, what's up with you? I want what you have. And, Father, it would all point to you. Father, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.